Update on the Ukraine uh, war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davison, uh, and we'd like to basically give you an update about what's been going on in the last few days. There's been a lot of reporting, there's been a lot of chatter on Twitter, and it's very difficult to really get a sense of what's going on. Uh, so, Derek, thank you as always for you know you're really doing amazing work here, keeping up with everything, and and I, I know I really appreciate it. For <laughs> our listeners do as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult situation from a lot of different angles. So why don't we just start at the beginning and literally what has happened um, since the Russian invasion? Could you give us an update on the military positions, what appears to have been going on? Uh, I've seen reports online that Russia is doing worse than expected, but is that just filtered through a Western media lens? Um, What can you tell on the ground? But the caveat, of course, um, is that uh, this is still in the fog of war, and some of these things might be proven to be incorrect, but we'll try to give you um, as clear an update and as accurate an update as possible. Um, yeah, so, uh, I, I mean, it, it is hard to keep up to date, and, um, you know, obviously by the time people listen to this, it's going to be inevitably out of date anyway, but... Uh, in terms of the position on the ground, um, over the weekend, uh, the uh, looks like Russian advances toward Kiev, the the capital of Ukraine, and Kharkiv uh, in northeastern Ukraine have been uh, somewhat stymied. Um, overnight, Saturday to Sunday, uh, sounds like the Russians broke briefly into. Uh, the city of Kharkiv got through the defenses, but uh, the governor of Kharkiv is saying, is claiming uh, that they've driven the Russians back out of the city. Um, you know, it's uh, all of this stuff should be treated as unconfirmed because it's uh, very difficult to know who's uh, who's talking and and why and what they're saying, whether what they're saying is uh, actually true or just a snippet of information. Um, but it looks like. Uh, Kiev uh, may have actually had a, a relatively quiet night compared to Friday to Saturday overnight, which uh, seems to have involved a heavy Russian operation that nevertheless was unsuccessful uh, in breaking into the city. So those two cities seem to be still in Ukrainian hands. Derek, I uh, just have a quick question. Uh, uh, just a quick question. Why are these cities important? Well, Kiev, it's the capital, and Putin clearly wants to decapitate the government of Zelensky. But why is Kharkiv important to the Russian military? What appears to be the strategic plan? Well, Kharkiv is the um, second largest city in Ukraine, so uh, it's it's a very important commercial center um, and uh, controls kind of the northeastern part of the country in in an administrative sense or an important sense. Um, It's uh, also a city that has um, a large Russian population. And I mean, I I don't want to get too far into speculating about Russian war aims, but uh, prior to, let's say, the events of 2014, 
the Maidan uprising and then everything that's happened since then, uh, Kharkiv was one of the more Russo-friendly or Russophilic uh, cities in Ukraine. So I, I suspect um, uh, to some degree the, the Russians may have felt they would have an easier time taking that city um, and probably hoped that they would be able to take it fairly quickly and that that would start something of a chain reaction that would, uh, you know, see at least eastern Ukraine start to start to empty out and defenses weaken so that they could roll into to other parts of that uh, region. Um, so if I, I mean, if I had to, to speculate, uh, well, I guess I just did, uh, about why the Russians wanted the city, that that would be it. It's because I think they, they felt it was a fairly easy target. It's not that far from the Russian border. Um, they may have felt they would get a, a more, a warmer reception there than perhaps in other Ukrainian cities. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think that's the, the goal there. Um, um, and Kiev, it's uh, Kiev. It's just to basically well, I mean, that's the to decapitate the Ukrainian government. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to take Volodymyr Zelensky and and company, um, and you know, imprison and or kill them, and uh, you know, symbolically, obviously, to take the capital. And I mean, Kiev, uh, you know, is a is a very old city. Obviously, people know, and it has a lot of salience with the uh, Russian nationalism and Ukrainian nationalism, and and it's uh, you know just a, a a very symbolic target in addition to being. Uh, the seat of government. Yeah. Um, so, so sorry to interrupt. So please continue. No, that's fine. Uh, there's been some movement. I think some some more movement uh, in uh, the south. Um, and again, I, I, I don't want to. Uh, I want to caution people that that all of this stuff is sort of um, unconfirmed. Hard to know exactly what's going on. Uh, but it seems like the Russians captured uh, a small city called uh, Melitopol uh, in southeastern Ukraine uh, over the weekend. Uh, they've been attacking uh, the city of Mariupol, uh, which is a, a fairly sizable port city uh, in southeastern Ukraine. Uh, it, it looks like they're trying to build, and this would make sense, a, a bridge uh, along the southeastern Ukrainian coast that would link the Donbass, uh, the separatist region where Russian forces are free to come and go, uh, with uh, Crimea and the parts of southern Ukraine that, that the Russians have already been able to, to seize moving out from Crimea, kind of moving north from Crimea. Uh, so there's been some advance there. Uh, the Russians just... Sunday uh, claimed uh, through Russian media uh, that they had surrounded and besieged two uh, southern Ukrainian cities, Kherson and Berdyansk. Uh, I don't, uh, I mean, that's Russian media. Again, I would, I would treat it as unconfirmed. Uh, it's possible, certainly. Um, but, uh, but, you know, uh, I, I would just take it with a grain of salt. Uh, so there's been some movement in the South, some movement in the North as well. But I, I, I think as you uh, say, some, there's been some chatter that this isn't going as quickly as the Russians may have hoped. I think there may be, uh, something to that. And yet I also think, uh, people, especially from what I've seen on Twitter are making far too big a deal of it at this point. 
Why do you think they're making far too big a deal of it? Is it is it because Russia hasn't fully committed itself to the invasion? Are there still large reserves of troops? What is the weapons situation? Because I've read um, various things. Some some let's just take it from the things that are really being filtered through the Western media. The idea that Russia has committed, I think I saw the numbers two thirds of its fighting force. Um, I think I saw something along the lines of that. It'll be very difficult for them to resupply with missiles and other forms of artillery. Um, from what you can tell is this accurate or is this inaccurate so i mean i think there's some uh, i i don't discount that they're they're probably running into logistical problems i don't discount that this is taking longer than they thought at least in in certain places like kharkiv for example um that that they may have gotten bogged down they may be surprised at the level of resistance they're probably they were probably assuming they would have uh, ukrainian air power and air defenses uh sidelined by this point and they don't uh, not entirely anyway um so all of that is is um is, is, seems realistic to me what what's unrealistic i think is to make sweeping pronouncements that the war is over, that the Russians have lost. I think this is uh, wishful thinking and cheerleading to some extent. Um, it, it may wind up that way. I mean, it may wind up being the the, the most unlikely of outcomes here where this is just a straight up uh, military defeat for the Russian invaders. And that's within the realm of possibility. But I would say, uh, you know, to look at the last time a major power attempted something like this, uh, which I would say was the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. It was three weeks before the United States took Baghdad. Uh, and that was a much harder logistical uh, invasion, given the geographic uh, distance, just uh, the distances was, yeah. that had to be covered. Um, so, you know, the fact that the Russians haven't storm through Ukraine in three days or four days now, I think, uh, is, you know, is, is maybe interesting, potentially notable, uh, but I don't think it, it's uh, a sign that they've, uh, they've kind of face planted here, uh, not yet, at least. Yeah, at least not yet. And I think that's important to underline again that this is all very fluid. Um, how has the Ukrainian military responded? In particular, how it seems that there's basically um, the Ukrainian government is arming civilians and then there are going to be these sorts of uh, uh, urban warfare or urban battles, which people should know are some of the most brutal battles possible. You know, when you're thinking of World War II and, and um, the, the Western um theater, the European theater of operations, you're oftentimes thinking of forests or urban warfare, and urban warfare could be truly brutal. So could you give us a little update on the Ukrainian military and these sorts of um, armed civilians, people without any military training for the most part, um, men um, and women, people of different genders, it seems to be? Right. I don't think that they've gotten to the point where they're engaging those, uh, I mean, call them what you want, civilian defense units or just civilians, armed civilians, I don't know what you want to call them, but I don't think they've gotten to the point where they're um, they're really heavily engaging them at this point, because that, that I think, they're, they're holding, I mean, and they have distributed guns, they've distributed ammunition, they've, you know, been teaching people how to make Molotov cocktails, the standard sort of urban resistance insurgent package. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, they're intending that to be 
the response when Russian forces actually get into and, and try to occupy uh, one of these cities. Uh, and as I say, they came seem to have come somewhat close to getting control of Kharkiv overnight, um, but apparently didn't. Uh, so I think this is still more or less a, um, a, a regular military on regular military fight. And, I, you know, it's a lot of um, I'm I'm speculating there. And, and you know, there's a lot of, uh, as you've said, fog of war. Um, there's a lot of fog of war around casualties. You know, we can uh, we can try to talk about that, but the numbers are, are kind of all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at, at this point, I don't I, I think this is still. Um, and this is, uh, to be honest, this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, I think this, um, if there has been a delay, if there has been a, a frustration uh, on the part of the, the Russian attackers, it's, uh, it's probably not great for them because the fighting is only going to get harder uh, if they actually get into these cities and, and try to occupy them and subdue the resistance. Uh, and if they're already having trouble, then, uh, you know, that's, that doesn't speak well to their... their their ability to pull this off. Uh, at the same time, you know, you, you have to be, I think, concerned at some point uh, that if they repeatedly can't fail to get into Kiev, if they repeatedly fail to get into Kharkiv and some of these other cities, they're just going to stand off and start pounding them with artillery, uh, which is, uh, you know, a very dangerous situation for civilians and combatants alike. Yeah, that, that would be genuinely terrible for the uh, people who are still in these cities, who are living in these cities. So that that is a natural transition to casualties. So again, I've seen numbers all over the place on Twitter, particularly in, in the Western media. It does seem that they're really emphasizing the loss of Russian soldiers' lives um, and even some POW captures. Uh, is there anything that we could really tell? Um, how, how does the war seem to be going in terms of casualties? So um, there have been, yeah, there have been claims all over the map. Uh, the Ukrainian health ministry was claiming, uh, for example, 100, around 200 civilians. Uh, that's as of Saturday. I haven't seen a figure uh, yet Sunday, on Sunday, uh, updated figure. Uh, the British government was tossing around figures of combatant deaths of around 450 Russians and, uh, again, around 200 Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, there have been some really outrageous figures, uh, outrageous to me at least, thrown around by Ukrainian officials who've talked about, uh, I think the latest uh, on Sunday was uh, from the defense ministry was like 4,300 Russian soldiers dead, which would mean they're losing like a thousand soldiers a day, uh, which seems just, uh, you know, ridiculous. Uh, it's not, I guess, outside the realm of possibility. Uh, I have also heard suggestions that uh, the Ukrainians may either be conflating intentionally or uh, unintentionally uh, n total casualty numbers with KIAs, which would mean instead of 4,300 Russians dead, 4,300 Russians dead, wounded, and captured, that seems a little more realistic. Um, but yeah, it's it's been the only figure that I think is is reliable at this point is uh, the number of refugees because that's something that's tracked by the UN, which has uh, personnel in in countries all around Ukraine where uh, refugees are going to. Uh, they, as of Sunday, had estimated around thirty three hundred sixty eight thousand, excuse me, uh, refugees crossing. Uh, the border into Poland, Romania, Moldova, etc. Um, 
that doesn't account for internally displaced Ukrainians. The number of internally displaced is likely to be substantially higher than that. But, uh, you know, it's it's uh, that's not something that I think anybody is in a position to count. So, uh, yeah, basically, I, I, I just don't think there's any way to get a full picture of this. And anybody who's trying, whether it's the Ukrainian government or, um, you know, the Russian government, which hasn't even acknowledged. I think they just today acknowledged that there have been some Russian yes, casualties. Yes, just did but, right before we came on. Yeah. But they haven't put any numbers to that. And up until today, they hadn't even acknowledged that there were any. Uh, so, you know, whether it's the Ukrainians or the Russians or the British government or whomever is, is trying to do this, uh, I don't think anybody has a full picture. And, and, and you know, it's uh, uh, you have to sort of, again, treat all these attempts at estimates with uh, a, a lot of skepticism or, or you know, just, uh, you know, keep in mind that they're not they're probably not accurate. Most likely, uh, they're undercounts. Although, uh, uh, as I said, that that Ukrainian figure of you know four thousand plus dead Russian soldiers seems like an overcount. But who knows? Yeah, we'll we'll find out more in the coming days, and probably more likely coming weeks. So that leads naturally into um, what can we tell about the domestic reaction within Russia? Um, right, uh, I think the day uh, after the invasion, there was a lot of Western coverage of anti-war protests. Um, has there been anything? Uh, have there been updates on that? How has the Russian government been cracking down on what seemed to be um, growing protests? And also, how has the elite, um, particularly the elite around Putin, the so-called oligarchs, uh, can we tell how they've been responding to the invasion? Um, so, I mean, I think you can't really know how many people are taking part in these protests in Russia. The fact that they're happening at all is is notable. And I think, uh, you know, you have to kind of tip your cap to, to the people who are doing this because they're all basically going out to protest under the assumption that they could be arrested. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that that's that takes a certain amount of, of uh, I think, fortitude to do that. Um, you can, I, we can sort of try to estimate the size based on the number of people who are being arrested each day, uh, relative size anyway. So that would indicate that uh, Thursday's protests where I think around 1,800 to 2,000 people were reportedly arrested would have been the largest. Uh, there have been around 450,000 arrested Friday and Saturday. Uh, I'm seeing 900 uh, arrested uh, in total on Sunday. That's the, the number I've seen today. Uh, so, you know, probably there's been a little bit of a pickup uh, on Sunday. I don't know. Um, there were also there's also some domestic uh, reasons why the protests on Sunday uh, uh, may have been a little bit larger. It's the anniversary of the murder of Boris Nemtsov, who was a Russian opposition politician, who was murdered uh, near the Kremlin, uh, obviously seven years ago. Uh, so some of that may have fueled uh, higher numbers on on Sunday. I don't know, um, but uh, yeah. So I think you know these are these are not insignificant protests, uh, but I, I you know they're not. Uh, we're not seeing like tens of thousands of people in the streets. Obviously, that would be a, a you know bigger, uh, much bigger deal. Um, but they're they're not nothing is is what I would say. Uh, in terms of the inner circle, um, you know, it, it's difficult to uh, kind of ascertain. It's not a they're not very open to uh, you yeah, know. They're not letting us public. know. <laughs> they're not really like sharing their feelings with anybody. But uh, I will say uh, two. 
uh, Russian oligarchs, including uh, Oleg Deripaska, who is one of the favorites of the Rachel Maddow crew and sort of, uh, you know, portrayed as this mastermind of uh, Russian uh, irredentist uh, uh, shenanigans, uh, on, called on Sunday for an end to the war um, publicly. Uh, so that's that's interesting. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know the dynamics here. Uh, I don't pretend to know the dynamics of Vladimir Putin's inner circle uh, or the people who he talks to. Uh, well, that makes you unlike everyone in the Western media who uh, yeah. apparently has an exact um, idea of what's going on. But, you know, I mean, the fact that they made these comments publicly is is interesting. And so uh yeah we'll, we'll we'll you know have to have to see what's what's happening i mean you know we we need to talk about putin's decision to put uh russian nuclear forces on alert yeah, we'll talk about is, that in a minute yeah um you know is a is a, the kind of a step that can raise eyebrows internally um we should also mention the the you know that there are some there's been some movement toward peace talks i don't think a uh, very serious one but we can talk about that as well uh, so, but, but yeah, the internal dynamic, you know, pretty opaque, but there's little signs of, uh, discontent with, uh, with how this is going and, and maybe with the decision to invade at all. I don't know. So let's go to the nuclear issue. Uh, what did Putin do? Why is this important? And are we genuinely one step closer to a nuclear, uh, nuclear use, a use of nuclear weapons? Um, well, so yeah, I mean, we you know we sort of need to talk about sanctions, but we can we can get to that in in a, in a minute. Um, on Sunday, Putin ordered um, he gave a televised speech and he complained about uh, aggressive statements from uh, NATO members. He complained about sanctions, and he said that he was ordering. Uh, the defense minister, I'm now reading from his the little quote here, uh, the defense minister and the chief of the general staff of the Russian armed forces to put the deterrence forces, i.e. nuclear forces of the Russian army, into a special mode of combat service. Uh, that's a euphemism. Uh, it probably means that he's... Uh, turned on some of the systems. I mean, I'm not a, a, an expert on uh, nuclear arms, but but I think you know he's put them on a, a low state of alert. So uh, yes, on on paper at least, we are I think technically a step closer to somebody launching a nuclear weapon here. But I don't think it's that big a step yet. Um, that said, any step closer to launching a nuclear weapon is a major uh, you know major thing, and I think. Uh, you know, really, if you want to start speculating or if you've been speculating about uh, Putin's mental or emotional state, it doesn't speak well to that. Um, so, uh, you know, again, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I've seen uh, analysts say that this is, you know, probably akin to kind of... Uh, putting everybody on just a sort of general alert that the nuclear forces could wind up uh, being needed at some point. Um, I've seen at least one analyst, Russian military, ex-Russian military uh, type who was talking to, to German media uh, say that it, it may not really mean that much at all. It may have just been for show that uh, Russian nuclear forces are basically always on some kind of alert and what Putin, the way that Putin phrased this uh, remark 
uh, doesn't really have a legal, like it doesn't have a, a technical um, meaning in terms of uh, the way Russia operates its nuclear uh, system. So, you know, it could be anything from just rhetorically kind of saber rattling to the West to some some move in the direction of, of you know, getting the uh, the missiles ready just in case. So uh, either way, a bad situation, and um, uh, I think yeah, that- not not the kind of thing that you you want people to be talking about. And of course, of course, Putin. This is the second time now that he's referenced nukes when he announced the invasion. He, he basically, uh, you know, in, and again using euphemisms, kind of obliquely uh, threatened to to nuke anybody who interfered with his plans for Ukraine, uh, without really specifying what interference would be. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think he's playing. Uh, uh, maybe a dangerous game of chicken would be the best way to talk, to to categorize it. Yeah, it, it's very depressing and upsetting, actually. Um, and one of the reasons that Putin has done that with the nuclear weapons has been the West's response. So th- these this is a relatively complicated issue. And um, I would just also like to point people, we've recently done some episodes on sanctions where we really go into the history and the detail of that. So uh, if you want some more depth, uh, you know, the historical context of that, please check those out. Uh, they were in the last few weeks and they have sanctions in the title. Um, but Derek, maybe you could just say, um, what has the West response been in terms of sanctions and then we'll uh, we'll turn to other forms of Western response as well so uh, the big event uh, outside off kind of off the battlefield this weekend has been uh, Western nations uh, the US the UK the European Union uh, Canada I guess you know are in that group uh, finally agreeing to invoke uh, the Swift banking network. Uh, this has been sort of the the big hammer sanction that's been kind of floating around here, you know, and people wondering if uh, Western governments were really going to be willing to pull the trigger and cut Russia's financial sector off from SWIFT, which is uh, a network that basically facilitates international monetary transactions. So being cut off from it means – And Russia has a lot of – Overseas finances, basically. right? Russia has, yeah, cuts that, directly the to second, the heart of that. That's a second, uh, that's a second sort of piece of this. But uh, the decision that they wound up making uh, on SWIFT uh, is a bit of a compromise. They're not cutting every Russian bank off, uh, at least not now. Uh, they're going to pick and choose specific Russian banks. There's several Russian banks that have already been sanctioned uh, by the EU and the United States. Uh, those will immediately go on the list along with, I think, some other. I, have, I, I mean, I don't know uh, if they've even released the, the list of specific banks yet. Uh, but the, the banks that are already sanctioned, plus I think there will be some others uh, that wind up on the list. But it's not going to it's not a blanket ban yet. Um, that said, I mean, we've gone from like, you know, the governments of Germany, uh, and, you know, a couple of other EU states basically ruling out uh, a swift cutoff to now a partial swift cutoff. I don't think it's going to take that much more, uh, to get to the full, uh, a full cutoff. Um, as you alluded to, there's another piece of this. And the other thing that, that was announced, uh, on Saturday, uh, was, uh, an effort to uh, impose some kind of restriction, and I'm not clear exactly what 
level of restriction we're talking about here, if it's a full freeze or if it's uh, something short of that. And I think the, the, you know, the, the announcements that they made on Saturday were very general. So the details will probably be um, kind of brought, you know, brought to the fore over the next couple of days, but imposing some level of restriction on the 640 billion uh, in foreign reserves that, that the Russian central bank has, uh, stashed in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, that's another very big hammer blow, uh, potentially, to the Russian economy. Um, it's, uh, you know, it will, it will uh, take, uh, obviously, a huge amount of capital out of that bank, and it will affect uh, the ability of Russians... Uh, everyday ordinary Russians plus the the oligarchs and uh, the upper class uh, to convert rubles, for example, to dollars or euros. Uh, there's, I think, already some evidence that uh, you know the the price of the ruble has fallen far enough in response to that decision. It had already been, you know, had started falling uh, when the invasion began. That. Uh, when the bank, when Russian banks open on Monday, there may well be a, a, a run uh, as people kind of race to get their money out in other denominations. Uh, so this this is a this is another big deal, and it's uh, you know uh, we'll we'll have to see the the full ramifications of it. But they've they've really uh, reached for the you know reached got kind of escalated the uh, the level of financial pain that they're they're uh, prepared to inflict on the on Russia uh, over the weekend. Yeah, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is ordinary Russians as well in the Russian elite, right? Yeah, no. As I said, this is. I mean, this is going to hit everybody. These are the kind of sanctions that. I mean, they're not as severe yet, but they're the kind of sanctions that you hear talked about in you know Venezuela and Iran. uh, You know, full on bank bans and and kind of just excising this country entirely from uh, from global finance, And, and that's that's the kind of thing that will. Um, hurt ordinary people, and you know, I mean, I, I don't. I'm not saying that in a belittling way. I always hate the term "ordinary people," but uh, you know, we'll hit Russian workers. There's no good term. The average yeah. Russian, you know, like average the, uh, Russian. Yeah, there you go. Uh, there's no, yeah, really, no good way to say that. But the average yeah, Russian, as none, well yeah. as um, the elites who have already seen their own personal assets, you know, say in, in the UK or, or EU, many of them have seen them uh, frozen already. So, so yeah, this hits. This this hits everybody. This is not uh, we're out of the realm of targeted sanctions, and when we're getting into the realm of of general uh, mass, yeah, engendering a perhaps a Russian recession, which will absolutely affect the domestic position of Vladimir Putin, which will be very interesting to see in the coming weeks. Which to me is not unrelated, like we were talking about earlier, his his comments on nuclear weapons. It seems to me that well, let's get to it. Okay. Um, so um, bef- now let's go to the, we talked about the economic response. What has been the martial response? What has been the military response? Have there been weapons transfers um, from whom and why is this important? Yeah, there've been, I mean, there've been a number of these and I don't, I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, you know, countries across Europe uh, announcing, uh, you know, that they're sending more military aid and, and not necessarily lethal military aid. Some of it is, you know, weapons and ammo. Some of it's body armor. So it's, you know, other material. Uh, even Germany has now decided that it's going to going to send uh, uh, aid to uh, military aid. It had been one of the, the last 
countries, maybe the last country in Europe that was resisting uh, sending weapons to uh, to Ukraine. And they've they've not only announced that they'll be sending weapons, they've cleared third parties to send German made weapons to Ukraine, which is another uh, facet of this this issue. Uh, so that's that's been a big deal. Um, there's another, there's another, uh, thing with Germany that I want to talk about in a minute. That's, uh, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. A huge um, deal. I want to talk about that for a few minutes, actually, but, but could you continue uh, on the weapons transfers. Cause I have the a question. U S I mean, the U S as, as it is wont to do has been, uh, the biggest contributor here. I think the Biden administration just announced another 350 million, uh, in, uh, military aid. And most of this is taking the form of, uh, anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, like Stinger portable anti-aircraft weapons. Uh, you know, those of you who remember the the brave Afghan Mujahideen will uh, will understand why that matters. Uh, uh, I want to talk about that memories. in a second, actually. So please continue, uh, but then I want to talk about that for a moment. So yeah, so that I mean, that's been the Marshall response. There have been some other. Uh, things that we can talk about, for example, uh, I think now 20 nations, uh, 20 European nations plus Canada and maybe some others outside of Europe. I don't I don't know. I'm having a hard time kind of keeping track of this uh, have closed their airspace to Russian uh, aircraft. So, you know, if you were on a commercial flight uh, from Russia to, let's say, uh, Paris, you're out of luck basically. Uh, so that's another measure. It's not, I mean, it's not insignificant. It's very inconvenient and costly for Russian airlines uh, to have to kind of maneuver around these various uh, airspace bands. So that's, that's a big deal. Um, and I mean, you know, it's symbolic, but it also does have an economic cost. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the other thing that, that we should probably talk about uh, in this regard is, is uh, Turkey's, Apparent decision to wait, uh, Derek. Before we move on, hold on. I want to. Yeah. I want to stick on weapons transfers for a second because okay. I think this is important because this is where we see a lot of fault line on what I would say is our side of the aisle. Right? Should the United States fund Ukrainian resistance fighters through weapons transfers? And this is a really difficult question, right? Because I think like we are definitely not of the of the left that is saying the United States caused Vladimir Putin to invade. Uh, Vladimir Putin made this decision to invade. Um, and it is ultimately his responsibility and the consequences are his. But nevertheless, the United States right. does I, I mean, have a I would history. Say there were decisions, there have been decisions yes, yes. that have been made. In the macro-historical, yes, a, that's a different macro -historical issue. Way, we're going to talk about that in the past future. few months that may have contributed. Yes. But but ultimately, the, the responsibility here is... It, it lies with there was nothing in, in that, the final yeah. analysis as we say yeah, in in, in marxist theory um but this raises really <laughs> interesting questions about should the united states like we are american citizens we live in this country should the united states support resistance fighters with arms and i i just want to raise it because it's a really difficult question um because it reminds me and you and i were discussing in our chat about the mujahideen and the funding of the mujahideen in the 1980s and resistance fighters against the soviet invasion and, and sort of the negative consequences that had in the long term um so and i wrote a piece for foreign exchanges that i mean just personally i think it's 
it, it, if you're an anti-imperialist, it's very difficult to advocate arming of resistance fighters because this maintains this Amer American imperial position while admitting it's not a very easy situation. You know, these are people who want to understandably live in a nation state of their own. They don't want to be in invaded by an outside power. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on, on that philosophical um, issue. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Um... I don't know uh, what my thoughts are on the philosoph philosophical end of this. My my issue, my concern uh, with weapon shipments is what does that do to the nature of the conflict? There's research that uh, suggests that that propping up one side with weapon shipments from outside a country in a situation like this uh, prolongs and intensifies intensifies conflict, yeah. causes more casualties. Uh, and that that is would be my primary concern here is is uh, you know it, it, you know what are we doing here are we making this worse for people and for for Ukrainians um, but again as you say that's complicated by the fact that Ukrainians are asking for this you know many of them uh, for obvious reasons want the help to to try and stop this invasion uh, so yeah I mean I I think it's uh, I tend to come down against. This kind of thing, both for the um, the effect that they can have on in terms of uh, intensifying the conflict, and in terms of uh, you know, this is one of those things where I think it's something that you've talked about before. Uh, even if it's uncomfortable in certain situations, this is probably uh, a power that you don't want the United States to have. Uh, yeah, in, in, gen in philosophically, in, in general. that's a philosophical right. issue, right? That, if you that, don't that, think I guess that is, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and even if it leads in specific cases to some uncomfortable outcomes, you know, I, it may be that you have to live with that. It's it's uh, um, not an easy question to answer uh, for sure. Uh, it, it also, I mean, the other the other part of this may to me is, uh, you know, what do you do in terms of uh, weapons manufacturers in the arms industry, and you know, is there an incentive uh, to sort of prod people into conflict because that's good for, you know, uh, Raytheon. I mean, I don't know who makes Stinger and Javelin. Uh, yeah, but it's good for the bottom line of defense It's good for the bottom line yep. of those companies, and, and they certainly have very long lobbying arms in, in Washington, and, and, you know, I, that's that's another perverse incentive. So Yeah, yeah and I just wanted to... Like you're better off wanted, not doing it. Yeah, and why I wanted to bring it up is I just want to bring it up as a question, I think, for, for serious leftists to think about. It's not an there's not an easy answer to this. There's no yes or no. And, and I think you have to just decide what what the medium and longer term goals are, or at least consider them and then and then reach a conclusion about that. So Derek, thanks. Thanks very much for talking about that. But have, sorry to have interrupted you. But what what is Turkey done? Right. So this is sort of, um, you know, in a in an oblique way, kind of related to the airspace ban. It's a ban on, I guess, water space. Uh, there's been a, a, a back and forth over the last several days about uh, possibly Turkey possibly closing the Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits, uh, which connect the Black Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, under the terms of the, the Montreux Convention, which was a 1936 agreement that uh, left Turkey uh, with in control of those straits under the uh, a kind of ironclad agreement that it would not close them to any country's shipping, commercial shipping, uh, except in times of war. Uh, 
Uh, under Montro, uh, Turkey does have the the right to close the straits in wartime to military vessels. Uh, and so the Ukrainian government has been asking the Turks to take this step, uh, potentially limit uh, or impact Russia's ability to get naval assets uh, from the Mediterranean into the Black Sea to uh, participate in the war effort. Uh, the Turks have been hedging, uh, for one thing, I mean, they, they've been uh, basically, in a, in a technical sense, hedging because they've been refusing to designate Russia's invasion as a war, in, in technically speaking, uh, so you know, they, it, so it wouldn't trigger the the language that that Montreux uses. Uh, they've been hedging, obviously, because Turkey has a close relationship with Russia. Uh, does not want to see that relationship harmed here. Turkey also has close relations with Ukraine, and uh, in fairness, is not you know does not want to see that uh, harmed either. The Turkish government and Turkish leaders, uh, Tayyip Erdogan, for example, have been critical of the invasion. Uh, but as I say, they've been hesitating and sort of playing this this kind of direct, more direct role in uh, in refereeing the conflict. Uh, they decided on Sunday to finally, in, a, in an official way, deem the conflict in Ukraine to be a war, which does activate the language uh, of the Montreux Convention and does give them now the ability to say uh, that they can't, they, they refuse passage through the straits to Russian naval vessels. There's a catch here, uh, which is that the language of Montreux and Turkey's interpretation of it um, does not allow the Turks to block passage through the Straits to Russian ships that are based in the Black Sea uh, or the Sea of, or the Azov Sea, which is uh, you know off the off of the Black Sea and a little bit further north. So, if there are Russian ships trying to get from the Mediterranean into the Black Sea that are in the Russian Black Sea fleet, for example, that are stationed in that region, uh, the Turks believe, and I think this is probably right. Uh, that that they can't stop those ships from from going through legally. They can't stop those ships uh, from going through the straits. That said, if there are any ships that are coming from other Russian ports and trying to get into the Black Sea, you know, it's it's a very subjective uh, designation, and I think probably a, a very much a gray area because the Russians can always, you know, uh, say, well, actually, this you know, this ship has been detailed to the Black Sea. Uh, fleet and now we're just bringing it home and 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 you know try to play some games to get around the uh, the restrictions. So I don't know how Turkey's going to implement this. Um, it is a, a fairly big step that they've even taken this decision to declare it a war and uh, potentially activate Montreal. Uh, you know, obviously the Turks rely to a great deal on their ownership of the straits and it's it's a you know kind of fundamental uh question of of national security for them to maintain that and anything they do here i mean you know sort of uh could provoke questions about whether uh the straits should really remain in turkey's hands the whole reason that montro came into being in 1936 was because there was a uh an international question over whether turkey should have the right to uh to kind of control passage through these straits or if it should be an international uh waterway and the fact that turkey won uh, control of them is is you know uh, very important. Maintaining that control is very important to them, uh, and they they you know really to uh, you know the, the, I think they would prefer uh, they would have preferred to just kind of keep their heads down and and not have had this uh, become an issue. But uh, that's that's where unfortunately for them that they're, they're uh, kind of stuck in in this place now. 
Um, thanks, Derek. That's that's really important to uh, underline what's going on outside of uh, continental Europe. So, but actually, let's return to Central Europe for a second and talk about what I think is one of the biggest outcomes of this, which is that Germany has apparently dedicated 100 billion dollars, uh, 100 billion euros. Apologies uh, to its defense spending, and this is of course big because in some ways this this is actually really crucial, um, at least my first take on this, uh, to NATO, because NATO was founded in order to keep the Germans down, keep the Soviets out, and keep the Americans in. And one of the major things that does is that the United States would have command, basically, of NATO and would fund a lot of European defense. So what do you think, this to me actually seems like it might be uh, a, a hinge point in when we look back in 20, 25 years. Um, what do you think about this? This seems to be an enormous move that Germany is dedicating 100 billion euro to its own defense. Um, I mean, it's certainly, you know, for them, for the level, their level of defense spending, I mean, their, their uh, defense budget was about half that, I think, in 2021. I don't know what it is this year. Um, and this isn't even part of this isn't even budgeted as part of the regular defense budget. This is on top of that. Uh, there's an additional one-off uh, hundred euro payment that they're making to to finance basically the uh, a dramatic buildup of the the German military. I think so. That's a tripling, uh, basically a tripling yeah, of German defense I mean, spending I mean, in a day. It's enormous. You know, yeah, on top of the money that they've allocated to. Uh, maintain the military that they have. This is all going to be spent on building up additional capacity. Um, I, I I agree. This is one of the things that uh, I, I mean. I think there's a, a few things that are happening right now outside of Ukraine. When we talk about long term impacts of this conflict. Um, you know, there's a, there's been a uh, I think the the question of uh, if if this results in a question about. Uh, raising the question about Turkey's control of the the straits again, that's a potential long term effect of this, uh, and this is another one. This sort of uh, the I guess advent of a brand new um, German military that has a much uh, much bigger capability, much more. You know, I don't know what they're going to spend it on yet. Presumably, modern aircraft, modern naval vessels, etc. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're talking about something that's going to have long-term uh, repercussions for everybody. It's going to have long-term repercussions for NATO because it does kind of imbalance uh, the. It imbalances the, the entire it's, project. It's been envisioned. Uh, it's going to have long-term consequences for the European Union, which has been, uh, you know, there's been this talk ever since. I mean, it goes back further than this, but especially since uh, Donald Trump was elected and, and, you know, Europeans suddenly decided that they couldn't rely on the United States uh, for defense. There's been this talk of a European bolstering the European Union's uh, military capabilities away, you know, separate from the United States and separate from NATO. Uh, this could have ramifications for that. Uh, you know, it, it could have uh, – it'll certainly have – certainly could have ramifications for France, which, you know, to this point, especially uh, post-Brexit, is the dominant uh, military power in Europe. Uh, that doesn't seem like it's going to be the case for very much longer. Uh, that that will have some, uh, some repercussions, certainly. Uh, and France, and just to be clear, just France, to be clear, has also been – historically at least most skeptical of nato yes um, going back yes. to the beginning of the alliance and, and i don't think french policymakers or military officials are going to respond especially well to the creation of a gigantic german military um, yeah i don't even though I, I don't there has see been it going over well 
Right. No, I mean, it's, not going it's to. the reaction. I, I doubt they'll they'll react in any way right now because it's you know they're sort of reading the room uh, to consider here. But I don't think they're going to be super happy about this development. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, you it remains to be seen. One of the one of the issues with European defense spending is has been in addition to the fact that a lot of European states kind of free ride on the United States for their defense and don't spend. Uh, very much at all. Uh, one another consideration has long been, you know, the fact that uh, if you want to have a, a pan-European defense force, it makes sense to organize it that way, and that means you know you kind of allocate responsibility for different aspects of that military force uh, to different countries. And instead of that, what you have is every country is still sort of spending on its own military in a silo. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they try to integrate uh, right. this spending in a broader uh, European a army horizon basically. to a broader European army because uh, because you could do some some things efficiently more efficiently certainly uh, if if that was the intention but I, I you know again it's it's uh, uh, you know they've just announced this so it's it's hard to know er, uh, early days and and one yeah. could imagine you know a world in which fears of Russia fears of a de relatively declining U.S. empire actually engender a novel democratic structure across Europe, right? The EU, the big critique of it is that it's very elite driven and very undemocratic. This might um, force some rethinking of that project, but it's, it's a very early days. It may, it may. And there are, I mean, you know, I would, I would point to one other development that's happening outside of Ukraine. Belarus is holding a referendum today, Sunday, uh, on constitutional changes that among other things would, uh, change their, uh, change Belarusian law about nuclear weapons, uh, which is not to say that Belarus is uh, now going to start producing nuclear weapons, but Belarus currently under, you know, under its constitution, uh, is a non-nuclear state. They're going to get rid of that. I assume, I assume this is going to pass. This is going to be uh, a successful referendum for them, whether the, no matter what the voters say, basically, because that's how votes, elections go in Belarus. Uh, and you know, what you could have is, is you could wind up seeing Russian, in theory, Russian nuclear forces stationed in Belarus uh, at some point, which uh, is going to be another, you know, thing for for uh, especially Eastern European uh, NATO members, but all through Europe is is going to be another kind of uh, red flash red light and uh, cause for concern. So uh, I think you're, you're seeing things happen that are going to cause not just, uh, you know, what's happened in Germany today, but are going to cause a rethinking of, uh, of continental security for some time to come kind of across the board. And uh, I mean, the big fear here, and I'm genuinely anxious about this, is that this might engender significant proliferation, given the fact that Ukraine gave up its nukes and, and look at what happened. Uh, and that's something we're going to keep an eye on. Um, I mean, so this is sort of reinforcing, it sort of reinforces the lessons of uh, Libya in 2011 Gaddafi, or yeah. you know, yeah. you know, uh, Iraq or uh, Iran, you know, sort of the, the notion that if you're a country you that give may up have nukes, yeah. a problem with a big power, you really can't give up your nuclear program you really you know this is this is actually a uh you know a, a something that you might want to keep in your back pocket it's and, a genuine deterrent uh, now to see it to see it applied 
I think in a non-U.S. context, not that the U.S. isn't involved here, but the aggressor is Russia. It's not the United States, and and we're still in a place, and even uh, it's kind of ratcheted up even more because this is a country that agreed, you know, at the end of the, uh, you know, when the collapse of the Soviet Union, at the end of the Cold War, to give up the nukes that were stationed on its soil. Uh, and is now being, you know, uh, subject to invasion by its big power neighbor. Uh, you know, yeah, it's it's uh, it just kind of. I think it's even a stronger kind of reinforcement of that lesson, which uh, is unfortunate because, as you say, it's it's likely to lead to uh, higher levels of proliferation, which is very dangerous. It kind of it doesn't prove, but it suggests that Kenneth Waltz had something to say when he suggested like permanent proliferation as the only way to end, you know, these types of wars. Um, okay, so we've got two more uh, subjects. So let's talk about these peace talks. Speaking of Belarus, that uh, appear. Uh, that they're going to happen on uh, between Ukraine and Russia at the Belarusian border. Um, what do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so uh, yeah, this has been there's been back and forth for a few days about uh, can we you know is there going to be are there going to be peace talks? Um, the the Russians offered something fairly uh, shortly after they invaded. In fact, they offered talks in Belarus. Uh, Belarus has basically made itself a combatant. It hasn't sent, to my knowledge, hasn't sent forces into Ukraine, uh, but it's allowed the Russians to send forces into Ukraine from Belarus, which, uh, you know, marks it as a, a participant in the war. So for, I think, understandable reasons, the Ukrainians said, no, we're not going to meet in, in Minsk to have this conversation. They offered Warsaw and uh, Poland, a NATO member, uh, which, you know, has the same kind of uh, implications for Russia from the opposite perspective. Uh, and so the Russians said, no, we're not, we're not doing that. And then they, you know, and then accused uh, the Ukrainian, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky and the Ukrainian government of kind of rejecting uh, peace talks, which is probably, you know, a little bit propagandistic. Uh, what I've seen here on Sunday is there's been some kind of agreement to hold talks at the Ukrainian-Belarusian border, so not in Minsk, uh, not inside Belarus, but maybe just across the border. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're going to send representatives, they're going to have some preliminary conversations. I don't, I'm skeptical that, that anybody's ready to really uh, discuss this at this point or to, to talk about uh, stopping the war. It's, it's early for that. But, uh, you know, if... If the Russians really feel like they've been uh, kind of caught off guard and they, they you know, are concerned that, that things aren't going their way and, uh, you know, if Putin has not lost his mind, which, again, I guess is, is sort of a, you know, wild speculation at this point, the, uh, there seems to be a consensus from a lot of analysts that uh, maybe he has, uh, but if he's still in a rational headspace, uh, you could, you know, maybe they will make some kind of an offer that that uh, begins a, a a peace process. I don't know. I mean, I think it's always important to note when these things happen, even if the likelihood of any major breakthrough is uh, is relatively small. So let's turn now to our final topic, which is the media coverage um, of the uh, Russian invasion, uh, and in particular, 
I've, I've seen some chatter um, about how it's, it's a bit racist that there's been discussions about how, like, I can't believe this is happening in Europe. You know, this is a middle-class society implying sometimes explicitly that, you know, it makes sense when it happens in the Middle East to Brown people. And when we don't care as much about that, but when it happens amongst, you know, people who look like us, quote unquote, you know, we could all know that us white relatively well off living in the West, um, things are different. So have you noticed that? Do you think that's a fair critique? Uh, and what do you think that criticism suggests if it is correct about uh, the, uh, the the Western portrayal of the invasion and, and war generally? Um, I mean, the only example of this that I've seen, and I, I don't, I try not to watch TV news uh, very much. Um, so, but I, but I, you do, you know, see sort of, uh, examples on Twitter and I, you know, I wonder if people are kind of picking at, uh, isolated incidents or if there's real, a real pattern, I, I don't right. know. Which is always but, possible. But, you know, I mean, the, the one that I've seen that was really alarming to me was the, uh, uh this foreign correspondent for CBS, Charlie D'Agosta, I guess is his name. I don't know how to pronounce it. Sorry. Um, who? Yeah. Pronunciation has never know, been our strong point. Not never podcast. been our strong point. Uh, just barrel through it. Uh, and I mean, this is part of the reason, you know, is because I think I think because I don't watch TV news, so I don't uh, I don't hear these names being said. But anyway, uh, yeah, he. I mean, he was on with you know the one of one of their anchors and uh, was sort of like. He, it's just so you know strange to see uh, something happening in a place, something like this happening in a place that's not like Iraq or Afghanistan. It's so, and then he was kind of like struggling to find the non. Yeah, because he knew where he was going. This. He yeah. knew. I mean, he was his the his train was was barreling ahead, and he knew where it was barreling going. into racist uh, station basically. And, and he was like. And he said, you know, uh, it's so uh, civilized uh, or uh, European. And, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, that's that's just straight up racism. You, you have, uh, your mindset is that war is sort of just part of the background noise. In, of the periphery, you know, basically. Uh, of the periphery, yeah. And, in, you know, the Middle East and Imperial uh, periphery. Asia and Africa, wherever. But, oh, my God, it's happening in Europe. Can you believe this? Um, and that's that, that's the mindset that that leads somebody to make a statement like that. He's since apologized, and uh, you know, certainly I I I understand misspeaking. I mean, I, I you know, I, I we've do done it before, <laughs> um, and sort of you know when something doesn't come out right. But uh, the mindset that, that that's behind that, I, I think, is is not like oops i misspoke it's like this is what i'm really thinking that i can't believe this is happening in a european place um i will say that i mean this this kind of racism is is happening not just in in the media coverage and again i don't know the extent to which it's happening in the media coverage uh but it's happening uh, with the refugee situation as well i mean these these people are uh fleeing to uh, you, you displaced Ukrainians are fleeing to places uh, that are not very welcoming of refugees under most circumstances. And by refugees, you know, over the last several years, it's been people from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Iraq, from Libya, uh, from Africa. You know, trying to to get across get across the Mediterranean or come through Turkey. And and you know, th there are governments in uh, Poland, for example, or, or you know, some some other Eastern European states that have come to power. 100% on the backs of xenophobia. I mean, this is their platform. This is what they run on. Uh, and so, 
you know to see those governments now say hey let's yes anyone from ukraine wants to come in it's great come come in i mean that that's obviously coming from a, a place that you know this, these are these are the good kind of refugees they're right. they're european and even yeah. even there even in poland and and you know you there are there have been uh, anecdotal accounts of uh, you know, Africans who are living in Ukraine or, you know, kind of people of African descent living in Ukraine or people of color uh, living in Ukraine uh, trying to get across the border and being told to go to the back of the line or, you know, we're not letting you in. We're just letting uh, basically the white Ukrainians in. And yeah, this has been, uh, I, I've seen enough reports of that to, to believe that it's happening, whether it's happening uh, because of a state level policy or because of a directive uh, or it's just happening happening because you've got some racist border guards who are, uh, you know, taking matters into their own hands. I don't know. Uh, but it's the same. I mean, it's the same thing. And, and you know, maybe even uh, being implemented in a more harmful way than, than what you see in the media, although I would say that's that's also quite harmful. Uh, well, well, Derek will end there, uh, and hopefully we can give an update next time when we could talk about the, you know, tampering down of the war. But if not, we'll give people updates uh, when, when things change. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening uh, to our fifth Ukraine update. And Derek, thank you, as always, for your incredible work. It, it impresses me so much, and I know that our listeners really appreciate it, too. So thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Danny, and thanks, everybody, for listening.